Well, we, uh, we are, our title for the seminar is, What is Truth? The Only Remedy for a Culture in Chaos. Now, in John chapter 18, the ruler and the judge of all the earth was standing on trial for his life. I don't want you to miss that first phrase. The ruler and the judge of all the earth was standing on trial for his life. And Pontius Pilate was questioning Jesus about why the Jews would want him put to death. Jesus had been claiming that he was Israel's promised Messiah, that he was the servant of Yahweh, that he was the coming one, that he was the son of David, the rightful king over God's covenant people. And these claims were an existential threat to the authority of the rulers of Israel. And so those religious leaders painted Jesus as a subversive rival, a, a, a treasonous challenger to the authority of Caesar. And in so doing, they manipulated the Romans into putting him to death. And so Jesus stood trial, and Pilate asked Jesus if he really did consider himself to be a king. Jesus responded with this remarkable declaration in John chapter 18 and verse 37. He says, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. When Pilate heard Jesus' emphasis on the truth, then he responded with a question. And perhaps he was asking rhetorically, or maybe he was asking dismissively. Uh, certainly he was asking incredulously, John 18, 38, what is truth? What is truth? And it may not be an exaggeration to say that no one has ever asked a more fundamental question than that. What is truth? In every era of human history, people have wrestled with the nature of the truth, and rightly so, necessarily so. The truth speaks not merely of that which is true, but of the standard itself by which all claims are measured. The concept of truth is absolutely foundational to the concept of knowledge itself. What we know, as well as how we know what we know, depends on our understanding of the nature of the truth. The truth is what distinguishes the genuine from the counterfeit, right? Is this a true $100 bill or is it a fake? It's what separates fact from fiction. Uh, is this a true story or is it just a myth? It's what separates reality from fantasy. Is this truly happening to me, or am I dreaming? And it even separates the moral from the immoral. Is this the truth, or is it a lie? In Pastor John's book, The Truth War, he writes this on the first page. Every idea we have, every relationship we cultivate, every belief we cherish, every fact we know, every argument we make, Every conversation we engage in and every thought we think presupposes that there is such a thing as truth. 
the idea is an essential concept without which the human mind could not function. And yet, as fundamental as the truth is to every aspect of human thought, there has been historically and there is today widespread confusion regarding the very notion of truth itself. Three different approaches to the truth characterize three broad epochs of history. In the era of pre-modernism, which spans from the beginning of civilization through to the mid-17th century, it was generally accepted that truth could be known and that any truth that was known was given by divine revelation, whether from the true God of the Bible or any combination of the false deities from the pantheons of the pagans, pre-modern peoples believed that only a being with knowledge that transcended human limitations could reliably reveal objective truth to mankind. The era of modernism, which runs from around 1685 to 1989, was spawned by the so-called enlightenment of the 16th and 17th centuries. There were great strides being made in scientific discovery and man's understanding of the natural world, and the result that man, what was that mankind became overly impressed with his own intellect. Philosophical advances caused thinkers to become skeptical of religious claims, skeptical of the reliability of the scriptures, skeptical even of the existence of God himself. So reason replaced religion, and philosophical rationalism demanded the rejection of claims that couldn't be squared with the reasoning of modernity. The test of truth became whether it was rational, whether it made sense, which is a good canon as far as it goes. The, the problem is, when it's divorced from the Bible and subjected to the natural fallen human mind, it leaves no room for the supernatural claims of the Gospels. A virgin-born, miracle-working, prophecy-fulfilling Savior who bore the sins of His people by His death and rose bodily on the third day simply could not surmount the bar of naturalist rationalism. And then into the 19th century, further scientific advancements along with the Industrial Revolution gave birth to what's called positivism. It's a form of empiricism that held that truth could be known through the scientific method. If we design well-run experiments and if we make the proper observations and inferences on the basis of the data, well, then we can discover what's true. In short, modernism held that man was able to discern for himself through what he could observe with his senses, the truth. He could discern truth for himself through what he could observe through his senses and by what he could understand by his reasoning, senses and reasoning. But the 19th century's un unbounded optimism in mankind's limitless potential was followed by the bloodiest century in the history of the world. Two world wars, a constant threat of nuclear destruction, and even the emergence of several dictators throughout the world provided a more realistic view of human nature. 
all the philosophical and scientific advances of the Enlightenment, all of the innovation of the Industrial Revolution only led to devastation and suffering. And with the fall of the Soviet Union, typified by the tearing down of the Berlin Wall in November 1989, the modernist era gave way to what's been called the postmodern era or postmodernism. So pre-modernism held truth could be known by divine revelation. Modernism held that truth could be known by the rigorous testing of the natural world and making rational deductions. But postmodernism is doubtful that the absolute truth can be known at all. Now, some versions of postmodern thought allow for the existence of objective truth, but they rather dogmatically reject the notion that human beings can arrive at such truth with certainty. You see, they're quite certain that no one can be certain of anything. Sure, there may be truth out there somewhere, but it is far beyond our ability to comprehend. But then there's another stripe of postmodernism that's become increasingly popular, I would say, to the point of dominating the other stripe, which asserts, again, rather certainly, that absolute truth does not exist at all, and that all truth claims basically boil down to mere opinions. And in these days of critical theory and cultural Marxism, It's become common to say that anyone making claims that they're speaking the truth amounts to persons from privileged groups aiming to impose their opinions and preferences upon marginalized groups so that the privileged oppressor classes can preserve their own power and influence over the oppressed. Illustrations of the postmodernist rejection of truth are ever-present Uh, Some of you are familiar with Todd Friel and Wretched Radio. Uh, A couple of years ago, they produced an apologetic apologetic video series called Road Trip to Truth. They traveled to local university campuses and interviewed college students about their views on truth, morality, and authority. And then they invited Christian professors and theologians to offer biblical responses to the students' claims. And frankly, it makes for a great small group Bible study, especially for, for middle and high school students because it helps them see what the, the sort of the, the winds and the spirit of the age is doing to the university setting, where they're heading, how they're going to have to engage in the world, and how to respond to it biblically. And though they asked these students questions on a variety of topics, there was one question they asked everyone, and that was whether they believed that absolute objective truth exists. And almost every one of them said no. You may have your truth, but I have my truth. And if my truth contradicts your truth, how could either of us be so arrogant and oppressive as to claim that one of us must subject our truth to the other person's truth? Those of you who have any unbelieving friends under the age of 50 have probably heard something like that fairly recently. One young man who was interviewed even said, quote, anything can be true even a lie if enough people believe in it. Anything can be true, even a lie if enough people believe in it. Now, that is not consistent with reality, but it is consistent with postmodernism's rejection of absolute truth. And that, of course, is to say that postmodernism is not consistent with reality. 
If there is no objective standard by which we can measure truth claims, both morality and reality descend into pure subjectivism, and the result is absurdity. I may say that again. If there is no objective standard by which we can measure truth claims, both morality and reality descend into pure subjectivism, and the result is absurdity. For example, if we can't say that there is an objective standard by which to judge an action to be truly good or evil, well, then morality itself is denigrated into nothing more than competing personal preferences, right? It's popular today for people to say that morality is subjective and that it's socially constructed, right? Certain societies sort of socially contract in agreement upon certain things that are virtues and other things that are vices, but what falls into each category uh, differs from culture to culture and uh, from time period to time period. But if that were true, if morality were subjective and socially constructed, by what consistent standard could we condemn the evils of chattel slavery or the Holocaust or of race-based segregation laws? I mean, were not the societies of antebellum America Nazi Germany and the Jim Crow South living their truth? If truth were nothing other than a social contract, uh, uh, whereby members of a particular society simply decide to live as if certain values are right and others are wrong, who are we to tell the Nazis that their culture is wrong? Wouldn't that, us be, wouldn't that be us arrogantly trying to force our worldview and our moral standards upon others? If there were no such thing as absolute truth, we couldn't consistently say it is absolutely true that it is always wrong to kidnap people and enslave them as if they were property. The most a consistent postmodernist could say is, I find race-based chattel slavery to be unpleasant, and I don't think it should be allowed, but I can't say that it's always wrong in all cultures. It could be morally right if enough people agree that it is. And some of those students in that video series on those campuses said that very thing. Well, I mean, I guess the Nazis' culture agreed on it. See, no clear-thinking person would ever dream of saying such a thing. It is absolutely true that slavery, the Holocaust, and segregation were moral evils for every society, no matter what the majority agreed upon. But you see, when a consistent application of your worldview prohibits you from denouncing such obvious wrongdoing as objectively evil, your worldview has been proven wrong. It can't account for reality. And that's where I'm going next. The postmodern theory of truth not only upends morality, it also undoes reality itself. Matters of fact are reduced to mere opinions. Sure, you believe the Bible, but I believe the Quran or the Talmud or the Bhagavad Gita. Well, yes, I understand that we believe different things, but it doesn't matter what we believe. It matters whether what we believe is true. Well, but we can both be right. 
Well, no, we can't both be right because we're making mutually exclusive truth claims. And if mutually exclusive truth claims could both be right, well, we would transgress a fundamental axiom of all rational thought, and that's called the law of non-contradiction, which states that a truth claim, call it A, and the negation of that very truth claim, call it not A, cannot both be true at the same time and in the same relationship. The law of non-contradiction is that A and not A cannot both be true at the same time and in the same relationship. And if that is not a sound principle of thought, we lose all rational basis for knowledge and nothing means anything. If you are listening to this sermon and you are not listening to this sermon, can both be true at the same time and in the same sense, there's no consistent logical basis for either statement. If the statement, even a lie can be true, is true, then that statement can be a lie, and there's no reason to believe it. You see, thought and communication are rendered impossible. The claim, there is no absolute truth, is itself an absolute statement. You understand? They're making an absolute truth claim to deny absolute truth claims. There's as much rational basis for using words to say there's no such thing as words, right? In my speaking the sentence that there's no such thing as words, I use words and prove the statement false. Saying it proves that it's false. My favorite question to ask those who say there is no absolute truth is, is it absolutely true that there is no absolute truth? You see, because if it is absolutely true that there is no absolute truth, then there is absolute truth. And if it is not absolutely true that there is no absolute truth, then there is absolute truth. <laughs> you see, if the claim is true, it's false. That is absurdity. That's the definition of absurdity. And of course, not everyone who makes these self-defeating arguments openly embraces those absurd conclusions that necessarily follow from them. But the point is just this, that when a consistent application of your worldview leads you to the absurd denial of reality or to self-defeating and self-contradictory claims, it's a surefire indication that your worldview has failed. And that is where our society lives right now. The choice has always been the triune God of the Bible or absurdity. And our culture has long ago rejected the triune God of the Bible, and they are coming down now to the end of the slide of absurdity. The consistent outworking of that rejection of God was the choice of the absurd or of, of self-contradiction, of fantastical denial of reality. And at the present time, there is no greater popular-level illustration of postmodernism's descent into absurdity than the transgender movement. There is no more brazen denial of reality than to suggest that a man can be a woman if he feels like it. Right? Not long ago, the notion of a pregnant man was comedic fantasy. 
Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger made a movie about it in 1994. It was called Juniors. Schwarzenegger gets pregnant. Everybody understood that it was make-believe, right? Like Santa Claus. But today, not 30 years later, if you deny that men can get pregnant, you're a transphobic bigot who should be banished from the public square, who should lose your job, who should not be welcomed into polite society. When the newest Supreme Court Justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson, was being interviewed for the position by Congress, she was asked whether she could give a definition of the term woman. And she said she couldn't because she wasn't a biologist. Well, what is that but the consistent application of the denial of the absolute truths of the basics of biology? In fact, in a recent documentary called What is a Woman, a conservative commentator interviews several people who have embraced transgender ideology, seeking an answer to that very question. You know, well, if if you can just be a woman, if you feel like it, what's a woman then? And during one interview with a gender studies professor, the interviewer says he, he wants to, listen to this, quote, get to the truth. And the professor responds... I'm really uncomfortable with that language. It sounds deeply transphobic to me. And then he threatens to stop the interview, saying, quote, you keep invoking the word truth, which is condescending and rude. You see, truth is inimical to those who wish to embrace absurdity and deny reality. And they recognize it. But it's not the case that truth is transphobic. It's that trans is truthphobic. And why? Why is our society so eager to embrace transgenderism? You ever ask yourself that question? I mean, it's not as if there's a huge transgender constituency in the United States. I mean, the entire LGBTQ population in America is still estimated to be only a little bit over 7%. Why is the transgender cause part of the Democratic Party platform when it embraces only 1% to 2% of all Americans? Answer, our society is so eager to embrace transgenderism because it is so eager to deny the absolute truth and objective standard of morality that are incompatible with transgenderism and relegate transgenderism to the realm of the delusional and condemn it as immoral. And why would that be? Well, Paul writes in Romans 1.18 that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against sinners who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, the truth has been sufficiently revealed to mankind. Romans 1.19, God made it evident to them. Romans 1.20, His attributes have been clearly seen through creation so that men are without excuse. And if they were to admit that there is an objective standard of truth, they would be forced to admit that every one of us is accountable to the God of truth, whose law condemns us for our own sins, whatever they may be. You see, even if those sins are not transgenderism. And so they suppress the truth of the very existence of truth. If there is an absolute standard by which transgender perversion is judged to be immoral, well, then there is a standard of absolute truth by which my perversion, whatever it may be, 
is judged to be immoral. I'm accountable then to the God whose law sets that standard, and then they get terrified. No, that can't be. Whatever I have to do to avoid that conclusion, I'll do it. Sure, men can be women. Let's all play play pretend. Anything as long as I can sin in peace. As long as the pangs of my conscience, informed by the word of God, don't harass me. Men can be women. Lies can be true. False can be true, right? There's something stubborn about the fact of biology. Men are men and women are women, and they're not the same thing, and they're not malleable. You have to deny the most basic of truths, self-evident truths, if you want to do away with any standard of morality by which you would be judged for your own sin. That's the play. That's the entire playbook at the present moment. And Jesus explains this in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Why does Jesus say they love the darkness? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the what? The truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. People reject the truth, both that which is true and the standard of truth itself, not for intellectual reasons but for moral reasons. It's intellectually bankrupt to reject truth. I don't believe in words. There is no absolute truth, right? No, they do it for moral reasons. Pastor John in that same book says, sinners love their sin, so they flee from the light, denying that it even exists. (laughs) It's, you know, shutting their eyes as tight as they can. I don't see the light. I don't see it. Where is it? Show it to me, right? But straight talk like this is no longer tolerated in the culture of tolerance. The cult, think about that. The culture that castigates you for not tolerating and indeed not celebrating drag queen story hour simply will not tolerate being told the truth. It's derided as unloving. And anything that is unloving is violently opposed to the ethic of Jesus, who taught his followers that love was to be their cardinal virtue. Love is love. They shout at us rather unlovingly. Well, yes, love is love. But love, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth which means that a culture that revels in unrighteousness and rejects even the existence of truth can have absolutely no idea what love is. Love, 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 love is love, love is love. But if love rejoices in the truth and they say by by, axiomatically that truth doesn't exist, then love doesn't exist in any meaningful fashion either. 
Love and truth are inextricably bound together. They are bound inextricably in the nature of God himself. Exodus 34, 6, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. They're bound inextricably as the sustenance of the worshiper of God. Psalm 40, verse 11, You, O Yahweh, will not withhold your compassion from me, your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. They're bound inextricably in the Christian's life of conformity to Christ's likeness. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love. Literally, that statement is, but truthing in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And they are bound inextricably, love and truth are, as the sphere in which the Christian life exists. 2 John verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. You cannot separate love from truth. And any society that rejects the truth will inevitably find itself not only unloving, but in chaos. And one telltale sign of such chaos is celebrating hatred as if it were love by calling good evil and evil good. Say, what do you mean? I mean, homosexuality and transgenderism are soul-destroying perversions. If not repudiated, they end in eternal punishment. And so affirming or celebrating or even refusing to warn against such sins is evidence of the most malicious kind of hatred. Not love. It is not love to see someone careening toward a cliff and because they're having the time of their lives in that car on the way to that cliff saying, oh, you know, I just really wouldn't want to interrupt their fun. That's a level of apathy that deserves only the name hatred. It is self-love that refuses to incur the ire of sinners because we don't want them to be mad at us for telling them what they're doing is wrong. No, we love like Jesus loves when we warn of sin's mortal danger and proclaim the gospel of the truth by which sinners can be rescued. And so I say to you, don't be deterred from issuing those warnings and proclaiming that gospel because of accusations that you're just full of hate. That's a tired old canard that the world uses to try to silence people who want to, do, want to be everything but hateful. And they think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit them right between the eyes. The, the, the last thing they want to be is hateful. They want to love, so I'm going to accuse their love as being hate. That'll teach them. Don't be stymied by it. It should come as no surprise to us that a culture that has no idea what love is also has no idea what hate is and sees the loving act of truth-telling as hatred. I'm not saying be a jerk, right? I'm not saying rake people over the coals. I'm not saying, uh, you know, be, be mean and disparaging. No, you, you lay your life down to serve everyone. But don't forget, dear people, that when you reject the truth, you accuse as hateful those who would dare disturb your delusion. And so don't be rocked by that accusation of hatred. 
All right, so what do we do with all of that? We live in this world that's under God's judgment to such a degree that they've been given over to a reprobate mind, to a mind that doesn't function, to such a degree that they've embraced the failed worldview of postmodernism, have denied reality and descended into absurdity. So what? What do we do? Well, I'll tell you, it's not enough to diagnose the problem. It's not enough to accurately discern it. It's not enough to lament it and decry it or to mock it, though it deserves mockery, and long wistfully and nostalgically for the good old days. And neither is the proper course to coddle postmodernism's uneasiness with truth by toning down the definitive and right-angled claims of the biblical worldview, by trying to compromise in order to contextualize the gospel to a culture that has set itself against the very fundamentals of knowledge and rational thought. Now, the proper response is not to compromise with the culture. It's not to retreat from the culture. The proper response is to boldly confront the culture by unashamedly proclaiming the truth of biblical Christianity. We are here in 2023, friends, to be the salt of the earth. We are here to be that preserving and seasoning influence upon a world that is rotting and decaying. We are here in 2023 to be the light of the world. We are to shine forth the light of the truth into a world that is lost in darkness. Salt that isn't salty is useless. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. See, we need to be equipped to engage these errors with the word of the living God. And so let us resolve to be salt and light to this dying culture by graciously and yet boldly confronting its lies with the truth of Christ and Him crucified. And that starts by considering how supremely central the concept of truth is for the Christian worldview, especially against the backdrop of a society that's rejected truth altogether. And in an effort to equip us to do that, I want us to consider in the rest of our time five pillars of the truth of the Christian worldview, five pillars of the truth of the Christian worldview, so that we might be able to sound forth to the world a clear answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? First, consider the value of the truth the value of the truth. So far from finding the concept of truth to be offensive or rude or condescending or outmoded or irrelevant, absolute truth is essential to the Christian worldview. Christians regard the truth as inestimably valuable. What is truth? It is inestimably valuable, first of all. In Proverbs 23, 23, the sage exhorts those who would gain wisdom to buy truth and do not sell it. Buy truth and do not sell it. Christians regard truth to be such a precious treasure that we are to exhaust all lawful means to get hold of it. And once we've got it, we're to never let it go. Sometimes you buy a stock as it's on the rise And then you sell it because you think that it's going to depreciate. You want to have made your returns. The Proverbs say, buy truth, don't sell it. The stock is never going to go down. It's never going to be devalued. It is inestimably valuable. By nature, 
all mankind is born in captivity, enslaved to sin, and doomed to reap its deadly consequences. But in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says that it's the truth that will free us from the bondage of sin and death. He says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. See, without the truth, we lay helpless in our slavery. Several verses later, in John 8, 44, Jesus says, the truth stands in mortal conflict with Satan. The devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what do you hear there? Lies are satanic, evil, wicked. Truth, by contrast, stands against such wickedness. The teams are clear, aren't they? Satan and lies on this side, God and the truth on this side. So when you hear criticisms of truth as a concept, folks who are skeptical of truth, oh, you know, you're talking about truth. There's no truth. There's truths. It's just my truth and your truth. It's, it's not really absolute truth. It's sort of subjective truth. It's socially contracted. Whenever you hear all of that, guess which team you're hearing from? You're hearing from the father of lies. As a result, to stand against the truth is to court the wrath and indignation of God. Romans 2, Paul speaks of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. He says in Romans 2.8, those who do not obey the truth will receive a judgment of wrath and indignation. If you don't obey the truth, you await wrath and indignation. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul characterizes the followers of Jesus as those who, quote, received the love of the truth so as to be saved. So how do I get saved? If you were to be saved from sin and the judgment to come, I must be one who has received the love of the truth, to love the truth. And then similar to his comments in Romans, Paul says that those who do not love the truth will perish under the judgment of God. So essential to the truth, sorry, so essential is the truth to the Christian worldview that Christ himself summarizes the entire purpose of his incarnation and mission from heaven in terms of the truth. It was the verse we started with this morning, John 18, 37, Jesus says to Pilate, for this I have been born. And for this, I've come into the world. This is what Jesus is about, to testify to the truth. And then he follows it up by saying, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, who hears the shepherd's voice? John 10. Who hears the shepherd's voice? The sheep who were given to him by his father, out of whose hand no one can snatch them, right? Who are the sheep? They are the elect. What is Jesus saying? The elect hear my voice. And so here's another instance in which the people of God are defined as those who are of the truth. And 2 Corinthians 13.8 is a text for our times. Paul says of true believers that we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Put that on a t-shirt. 
and walk around L.A. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for that. You might get killed. <laughs> Seriously, right? That, that is the Christian's motto. Nothing against the truth, only for the truth. Why don't you just call him the name he wants to be called, man? Why can't you just use his preferred pronouns? Well, because we can do nothing against the truth. And reinforcing someone's delusion like that against the creational design of their God is acting against the truth. We can't comply. 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church itself is the pillar and support of the truth. So, just this brief survey of few verses demonstrates it's impossible to exaggerate the absolute centrality of the concept of truth with respect to Christianity. And from these passages, we can reasonably conclude that Jesus and the apostles saw the truth as identical to Christianity itself. You don't like the truth? You're not a Christian. But more than the system of Christianity or the Christian worldview, Scripture goes on to identify the truth with the nature of God Himself. And that brings us to our second point, not only the value of truth, but number two, the God of truth. Number two, the God of truth. And in Psalm 31, verse 5, David prays to God for rescue from his persecutors, and he writes, "'Into your hand I commit my spirit.'" You have ransomed me, O Yahweh, God of truth. Isaiah repeats that title for God in the latter portion of his prophecy. Isaiah 65, 16, He who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. This is who God is. And so those who are uneasy about the concept of truth are uneasy about God. There is no middle ground. There is no way to be antagonistic or apprehensive about the idea of truth without also being antagonistic to the very God of the universe. Again, if you don't like truth, you don't like God. He's the God of truth. And further than that, since God is a trinity, since the God the Bible reveals is one God subsisting in three co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Scripture identifies each person of the Trinity with, with the truth. John chapter 7, verse 28, and chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus speaks of the Father when He proclaims to the crowds, He who sent me is true. John 17, 3, the Son addresses the Father as the only true God. And because He's the God of truth, He speaks only what's true. He is perfectly faithful. As Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. And then in the case of the Son, the Apostle John in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel says that the incarnation of the Son reveals the glory of God. And when that glory is seen with eyes of faith, we behold Him full of grace and truth. And so he says in John 1.17, grace and truth are said to have come or have been realized through Jesus Christ. 
See, because God is the God of truth and because Jesus is fully God and the exact representation of the Father's nature, the coming of Jesus is the coming of the truth itself. He is truth incarnate. As he himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Ephesians 4.21 says that truth is in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 11.10, Paul says, or he speaks of the truth of Christ. So truth is in Jesus, the truth of Christ, as if to say Christ possesses the truth. But it's more than that he possesses the truth. Christ himself is the truth. And the same is said about the Holy Spirit who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son and who works inseparably as the executor, the executor of the Father's plans and the applier of the Son's accomplishments. He is the, I don't ever, I never, never know which syllable to stress in that word. The, the Spirit is the one who executes the Father's plans and the Son's accomplishments. He is, John 14, 17, the Spirit of truth. John 16, 13 says, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Why? Because He'll speak the very words of Christ, who is the truth. And and then the Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 6, that the Spirit is the truth. So what is truth? In short, the triune God is the truth. Speaking metaphysically, Yahweh is the one true God, the only genuine God that exists, as opposed to the counterfeit deities of the pagan nations, right? The Thessalonians turned from God to idols to serve a living and true God. Uh, Psalm 96.5, all the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Or, speaking logically, the God of the Bible is incapable of erring, incapable of being mistaken. Why? Psalm 147.5, because his understanding is infinite. He knows all things as they actually are. And then, uh, speaking ethically, the triune God is opposed to all lies, deceit, and duplicity. He is, Titus 1.2, the God who cannot lie, who is perfectly and unfailingly faithful, whose faithfulness reaches to the skies, Psalm 36.5. And so the Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink wrote, God is the truth in its absolute fullness. He is, therefore, the primary, the original, the source of all truth, the truth in all truth. What is truth? Truth is that which is consisted with the mind of the triune God, the triune God of truth. And the culture is in chaos because they've rejected this God from being king over them and they've exalted themselves as Lord in His place. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. And God has graciously revealed His mind, right? If truth is consistent with with the mind of the triune God, God has revealed His mind to mankind in His inerrant Scriptures, in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. That brings us thirdly, to the word of truth. Number three, the word of truth. Because God is the God of truth who cannot lie, 
His words, which he has breathed forth into the pages of the Bible by the agency of human authors, are pure and unalloyed truth. In 2 Samuel 7, after God gives the Davidic covenant promise, David responds to that revelation by declaring in verse 28, Now, O Lord Yahweh, you are God and your words are truth. Proverbs 30 in verse 5, every word of God proves true individually. And then Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your words is truth. And so both individually and collectively, we must confess what Jesus says to the Father in John 17, 17, your word is truth. The word of God, the inerrant scriptures are not merely true as if their content happens to cohere with an external standard of truth somewhere. No, as an expression of God's own nature and mind, God's Word is truth itself. It's the very standard by which all truth claims are to be measured. It's not measured to be a meter by a meter stick. It's the meter stick. It's the standard itself. It is, as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, the Word of truth, which is to be accurately handled by the servants of God who labor in preaching and teaching. And so if anyone desires to know the truth, they must measure every truth claim against the teaching of the Bible. What is truth? Truth is that which is consistent with the Word of God, as revealed in the inerrant and sufficient Scriptures. And the culture is in chaos because it has rejected God's unchanging Word and has exalted in its place man's own twisted reasoning and fluctuating feelings. And what is the message of those scriptures? That brings us, number four, to the gospel of truth. Number four, the gospel of truth. The Bible is the word of truth, but the central message communicated to mankind in the Bible is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the forgiveness of sins through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. Listen carefully. It is the message that though all people have sinned and fall short of the glorious standard of perfection that a holy God demands for fellowship with Him, nevertheless, God the Son took on a human nature so that He could live and die in the place of the people His Father had given Him to accomplish their righteousness and to pay for their sins. And then having risen from the dead in victory, He welcomes all to lay hold of forgiveness through repentant faith in Him alone. And I say to you who are here this morning, who yet remain a stranger to the grace of Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn away from your sins to turn away from the absurdity and the fruitlessness of a failed worldview, to trust with your whole heart in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ for rescue from the just judgment of God, which we must all face if our Savior doesn't avail for us. So repent and trust in Christ and be saved this morning. This message, the gospel of your salvation, as it's called in Ephesians 1.13, is called the message of the truth, the message of 
the truth. In Psalm 69, 13, David speaks of the, quote, saving truth of God. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul speaks twice of the truth of the gospel. And in Colossians 1, 5, and 6, he says the gospel is that word of truth that bears fruit throughout the world. And so in James 1, 18, James says that the same word of truth, the gospel, is what brings sinners out of death unto spiritual life. The proclamation of that message is what opens blind eyes and enlivens dead hearts. Now, that gospel of truth is exclusive. The apostles declare in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And this makes sense with what we saw before in John 14.6. Jesus says, I am the truth, and no one comes to the Father but by me, which means, friends, every other proposed way to God, every other religion or philosophy, or way of life, or just half-baked, deep spiritual nonsense that your friend posts on Facebook. Every other alternative way to God or access to the truth in the history of the world stands opposed to the truth. Christ alone is the door of the sheep. All others are thieves and robbers. And so what is truth? Truth is that which is consistent with the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the culture is in chaos because it's rejected this glorious news. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Now, to say that truth is what corresponds to the mind of God is to say that truth is that which corresponds to reality. That which corresponds to reality. This is because God, who possesses all knowledge and perfect wisdom, can only know that which is really so, right? God can't be mistaken about anything. Reality itself is a result of God's universal decree, whereby He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And so God can never be deceived or mistaken or misled, and therefore His mind is identical to reality. And that brings us, number five, to the reality of truth. The reality of truth. It means that truth is what corresponds to reality. Nothing can be true that manifestly contradicts what is real. This is actually called the correspondence theory of truth. And while no one text of Scripture explicitly states the people of God subscribe to the correspondence theory of truth, well, the Bible nevertheless presupposes the correspondence theory of truth on every page. For example, Proverbs 12, 17 states this, He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. What does it mean for a false witness to speak deceitfully? Well, it means that he testifies to a version of events which does not comport with reality. He he claims that words were spoken that weren't spoken or that events took place which did not take place. His testimony does not correspond to reality, and so it's not the truth. 
By contrast, the witness who speaks truth tells what is right, the text says, which means what? Well, that he reports words and events as they really happened. His testimony of the truth corresponds to reality. Another example comes from Paul's testimony to Festus in Acts 26. As Paul testified to the suffering and resurrection of Christ as predicted in the Old Testament Scriptures, Festus accuses Paul of being insane. Acts 26, 24, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul responds, I am not out of my mind, but I utter words of sober truth. You see, a man who's out of his mind mistakes fantasy for reality. He believes things that are not so, but the truth is sharply contrasted with such falsehood and fantasy. The truth is sober. The truth is consistent with reality as it is. In a similar fashion, Titus 1.14 says, those who turn away from the truth pay attention to myths and commandments of men, which means the truth is neither man-made nor mythical. It is divine, and so it is in accordance with reality as God has made it. And all throughout Scripture, we observe a consistent contrast between the truth and lies. Jeremiah 9.3, lies and not truth prevail in the land. Romans 1.25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Romans 9.1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Ephesians 4.25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. 1 John 1.6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 4, 6, by this, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, right? It's plain that the biblical authors presuppose the correspondence theory of truth. <coughs> Contrary, then, to the claim that anything can be true, even a lie if enough people believe it, the Word of God declares emphatically, 1 John 2, 21, that no lie is of the truth. See, truth is not variable from person to person or society to society because reality is not variable from person to person or society to society. We all inhabit the same world under the same God who governs providence by the same inviolable laws of nature and logic. If someone doesn't believe in the law of gravity and jumps from a five-story building, the effects of gravity will not be suspended because no gravity is my truth. Gravity exists. It is reality, no matter who believes in it or who rejects it. The truth is the same. God is God, and we are not. His moral law, as revealed in the Bible, is the rule of our lives. If we disobey, we are liable to His judgment. The only way of escape is faith in Jesus Christ. Someone may not believe in those facts, but the truth is true no matter who believes it or rejects it. What is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And the culture is in chaos because it has rejected reality 
and has exchanged it for subjectivist fantasy and self-determination, expressive individualism. I guess I'm done. <laughs> Let's all go to sleep. No, that's fine. Those lights are hot. Uh, yeah. Almost done, though, for real. Our culture has rejected the truth, not just the truth of the gospel or the truth of the Bible or the truth of God's existence. They've rejected the truth altogether, the truth as a concept. And the fruit of such a rebellious and failed worldview is the chaos we observe all around us in which people self-identify as cats, right? There was, a, there was a story that came out about a high school that was censured or some, somebody was reprimanded or something because they didn't put out litter boxes for students who identified as cats. We live in a world in which Supreme Court justices, you think about this, lifetime appointments to the highest court in our land can't define what a woman is and in which math professors, tenured math professors, this one from my alma mater at Rutgers University, insists that, or that sa- says that insisting that two plus two equals four, quote, reeks of white supremacist patriarchy. <laughs> two plus two equals four, because you understand, it's the same thing. If men are men and women are women, and these are just stubborn facts of brute basic biology, then the, the same kind of stubborn fact that two of something add two more of it equals four of that thing, no, you can't say that. There is no absolute truth. It, it, you know, disbelieve your lying eyes, right? I mean, they're telling you to look straight into the sun and there is no sun. Look at the sky. The sky is green. And you're supposed to go, oh, if I don't agree, they're going to fire me. I guess I ought to say that the sky is green. No, dear people. Absolutely, we cannot yield that ground. You're here for that fight. That's what it means to be a Christian in this moment, in this part of the world, is to stand against the nonsense, to stand against the delusions, and to speak truth. And, and that truth doesn't come from your own you know, em- empty-headed you know, churnings about how you think life is and the, all the experiences that you've had. It comes from this book filtered through a mind and a heart and a life that follows after Jesus. You can't surrender. You cannot sit there and go, well, all right, I, I got to go along together. I mean, I got to eat, right? I got to have a job, right? I got to have a life, don't I? No, actually, you don't. You don't actually have to have a life, right? Like survival is not the sumum bonum. The, the sumum bonum, the chief end of man is what? That we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you know where we can do that? We can do that here. We can also do that in heaven. We can also do that with Him, having testified for the, to the truth. And you think about that passage in 1 John that says, you know, we don't want to shrink back, that we would be ashamed of Him at His coming. At his coming. You don't want to be... I think about this often. What if Jesus were to come back this afternoon while I'm engaged in something stupid, right? That'd be regrettable, right? I, I would hate to be involving myself in something that's worthless or worse, worse than still sinful, right? And then that's the time that Jesus returns for me. Now, I think that because salvation is by grace through faith alone, that I'll be covered by the righteousness and blood of Christ in that moment, and that I'll still go to heaven because I've genuinely trusted Christ with the empty hand of faith, right? Salvation is not by works. However, I don't want to be involved in something dumb or sinful or dishonoring when my Lord returns for me. 
right? You don't want to be having just made some sort of self-preserving choice that denies the truth and have that be the day that Jesus has returned. But when's he coming back, ladies and gentlemen? None of you knows. And if you don't know when, be on the alert like he's coming back whenever. Surely the master or the servant rather who is wise is the one who behaves himself as if his master could come at any time and not at no time, right? So we need to be about our master's business. And though the culture has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, Romans 1.25, though God has given us over as a nation to the unbounded lust and impurity that we see described in Romans 1.24, to the homosexual perversion that we see in Romans 1.26 and 27, to the depraved mind that embraces the absurd, Romans 1.28. Nevertheless, if our society has come under those judgments of Romans 1, we must follow the prescription or the mandate or the commission of Romans 1. And what is that? The proclamation of the truth of the gospel, whereby sinners can be saved from divine judgment. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And so though the things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14, and though the natural man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18, nevertheless, God still opens the minds of the blinded minds of the unbelieving and shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 6. And he, he shines that light and gives this miracle of regeneration by the proclamation of the very word of truth that the unbeliever so hard-heartedly re rejects. It's a, it's a beautiful miracle, right? The whole time as you preach this word, it's foolishness, it's foolishness, it's foolishness until it isn't, right? Until God gives the word, let there be light and shines in the soul. Now, by this very thing that you stumbled over and called foolishness, by that very means, I will awaken your heart and open your eyes to see how lovely it is. And he, listen to this, he enlists you and me to do that. Who are the preachers of that word? You and I are the preachers of that very word whereby dead hearts are awakened and blinded eyes are opened. That is unreal. Faith comes not by philosophical speculation or cantankerous bickering. Faith comes by hearing the message concerning Christ, Romans 10, 17. And so my plea to you is do not retreat from the chaos of this culture, Christian. March right into this culture. Engage it. Have conversations. Answer the hard questions. People reject the truths, these truths because they think there's no good answer to their objections. Because by and large, those who call themselves Christians are unequipped to give these answers. By God's grace, I have equipped you this morning. And so with gentleness and reverence, give the Bible's answers to the lies of this age. Be salt and light. Proclaim the truth, the truth of God, the truth of God's Word, and the truth of God's gospel. Let's pray, and then I'll take your questions. Father, we pray that you would make us useful. We pray that we would be stirred up by grace to action, that we would hear these things and it would make us eager to, to break down the barriers and the fortresses that imprison our friends and family members behind this impregnable wall of rejection and rebellion 
and the, and the making provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I pray that you would use these dear people, that you would use the people of Grace Community Church today, uh, later this afternoon, this week, uh, later this month, this year, and Father, for the, for the next decades until you decide to call us home or to send Christ for us. We want Grace Church to be a beacon of light, to be a place where the truth is heralded and proclaimed. We, we have no desire to be contentious or a bickering people. We don't want to give people a hard time. We want to rescue them. We want to testify to the truth of Christ. We want to see your son get what he's worthy of, and he's worthy of the worship of the people of this city. And so I pray that you would, you would just open the eyes of your people, those whom you've already rescued, to see what an amazing task you've called them to, and to, and to give them an, an internal motivation by the Holy Spirit himself to, to order their life around the proclamation of this message, and that you would not just grow our numbers, we are nothing, but to your name give glory. Grow your numbers. Grow the, the, the numbers of the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Lord, bring all whom the, the Lord Jesus has purchased into his fold through the ministry of your people, and then come for us. We are, we are ready to be with you forever, and help us to, to, in the meantime, love the truth, know the truth, love the truth, practice the truth, and steward the truth, and pass it on to the next generation who, when, when we go to sleep with our fathers, the, the, our children will come up behind us and pass this very message along to the next generation until Christ shall have all that he's purchased. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, we've got 10 more minutes. If you guys want have questions, I'll answer them. Or if, if not, don't worry about it. If you guys need to go, go. Michelle? Yeah. Sure. Right. Right. Self, certainly selfism, right? I mean, I think well, a couple different strands there. So first of all, right, everybody believes in God, right? Even the people who claim to be atheists aren't. Um, right? God has made it evident to them through what he's been made that there is a, a creator you know, that, that has this eternal power and divine nature being clearly seen through what's been made. So it's, no, it's nothing but the most basic acknowledgement of, of basic facts, like you're in front of me right now, to say God exists. Right? The, the fact that God exists is more certain than I can see my reflection in the mirror, because how else did all this get here, right? Um, the demons believe that God exists and shudder, right? And so it doesn't matter if you affirm certain truths. Hardly anybody gets everything wrong. I can't think of a single person in history who's been wrong about everything, right? We are made in the image of God, and so there's going to be things that we get right. But there's a standard of truth that you must submit yourself to. And if you say, no, I reject that standard for my own, and on the basis of my own standard, I, I accept some of the things that are in here, you're still your own God, you see? And so you're not a Christian if you accept true things about God 
on your authority. You're a selfist. And that's what needs to be. Yeah. It just has to be bold, loving confrontation along very clearly defined lines. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, because it could obviously be very serious. That person is heading for for sure. So, so two things. I think a lot of it does depend on one's personality and also one's relationship with the person. Right. I can be a kind of jocular person. I can be somebody who, you know, we're, we're talking about these things and somebody says something dumb, and I'll kind of smirk and say, "What now? Like, wait, what did you say there?" And and I think I can do it in a way. I mean, it's supposed to be barbed, right? But it's not supposed to be like a club. It's supposed to be like a little jab in the ribs that sort of says, no, you don't really believe that, do you? Right? That lets somebody, that lets somebody kind of grapple with the genuine absurdity of what they're saying. And I think that I have biblical precedent for that, right? I have, I have uh, you know, Paul who, who, you know, who says to the, the folks in Galatian, the, 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 the Judaizers, right? You think righteousness comes by circumcision? Cut the whole thing off. Paul, you know, this is, this is inspired scripture, you know what I mean? Um, he, he says something very similar in, in uh, Philippians 3, where he says, you know, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the concision, which is the, the, op, the mutilation, right? These people call themselves the circumcision, but they're really mutilators of the flesh. I mean, there are, there are play, I mean, Elijah, right, who, who call, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe that's what it is. You haven't, you see, there, there's, there are times when it's proper to ridicule the ridiculous, not out of spitefulness and not out of like, I'm going to, I'm going to humiliate you, but I'm actually going to show you the utter futility of the path that you're on, you're looking at me going two plus two may not equal four. I'm supposed to show you how silly that is, right? There's, an, I can't be like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's calmly, dispassionately speak about, you know, the basics of arithmetic. No, that's not the way that, that that's, a, that's an ideological claim. You have to understand when somebody denies that two plus two equals four, they're making a moral claim. And it's a, against the, that, it's a moral claim against the lordship of Christ. And, that ha- and the lordship of Christ has to be reasserted in reply to them. So understanding that we tear down strongholds, that we, we destroy fortresses, anything that's raised up against the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, I, I try to remember that my job as an apologist is not just um, you know, uh, defensive, I'm going to give you an answer, but it's also offensive. I'm going to tear down strongholds. Having said that, right, 
there are all of us, I think, fall off on one or the other side of that more naturally, right? I, I can be more acerbic and get get rankled quickly. I need to I need to guard against being a jerk, right? Others are much more passive and you know need to be stirred up to engagement and and, and can I think fall off on the side of just sort of cowering, saying, okay, you know, maybe there'll be another time, and that's that sort of a thing. Each one needs to be exhorted against the, the way that they fall off. The way that the way that they fall off, right? And so the, the opposite is how do I how do I remind myself because because they're not my enemy, right? They they are my mission field, and because I actually love these people, right? Like I'm not going out to say I think I'll pick fights today. I'd like to get into a fight with somebody on at the train station or you know outside at the mailbox. Or I, I, no, nobody. I don't. Nobody likes conflict. If you do, go live alone. You know, um, you know the, nobody wants this kind of level of tension. Right? But you're willing to enter into it because you love the people that are trapped by this nonsense. And so if you can know, recognize I'm coming to you for your benefit, and, and you're going to tell me all this crazy nonsense, and I'm going to have to remember, okay, that's what somebody who's enslaved sounds like. How can I patiently cut through the nonsense in order to show them how, how silly what they're saying sounds? It's just, it's just, it, it's pure wisdom. Pray, pray a lot, and pray that the Spirit would guide you in the moment. And you know, in, in one sense, the only answer to that question is love God and do what you please. Right? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give the desires of your heart. Right? You know, consecrate yourself, give your life as a living sacrifice, and you'll be able to test and approve what the will of God is. Romans twelve one and two. So I need to discern the will of God for myself in this particular conversation. Is this a time where I hate, hey, do you, have, do you actually have five minutes to talk more about that? It's an interesting thing you said there. Are, are you on your way to anything? I'd, lo- I'd, love to, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Or could I tell you what the Bible says about that? Would you be interested in that at all? You know, and if somebody says, no, leave me alone, leave them alone, right? God is sovereign, and you know, if, it, if it is God's will for that person to be saved, right, he will order providence so that that happens again, right? But you do what you're faithful to do with your, with your you know, allotment there. Um, but sometimes it's just asking a, a quick searching question. That's very interesting what you said there. Do, do, you ha- do you have a moment to discuss that? I'd like to ask you more about that. And then that just buys you time and you can see where you go. Why don't we sit over here and, and chat? Thanks for, thanks for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Now you said whatever. Now, now, where's that coming from? Or, or what about this, right? And you can be I think appropriately incredulous sounding, right? Like, I'm not so sure I see it that way, right? But I think genuinely engaged and interested. Because if we're to love these people, right, we actually are genuinely interested in in how they're going to avoid this. I don't know about you. I want to know how you get around this stuff. Like, what gymnastics do you do in your mind to avoid what we just talked about this morning? And so I'm genuinely curious. And And because you don't ever have to fear that the truth can be gainsaid, right? You don't have to be insecure. You, you walk into every one of those battles knowing you have an infallible sword to wield and a shield of faith that bears all attacks. Like you don't have to supplement the truth with your wit or your, you know, sort of um, 
you know, I guess jocularity is as good a term as any. You know, like I'm gonna I'm gonna beat you down on this. I'm gonna be, you know, I mean, I'm gonna show you how superior the Christian worldview. The whole of the Christian worldview rides on me winning this argument. No, like that's a bad way to approach any conversation. You could go in there free and willing to serve those people, as long as they'll they're worth they're willing not worth as long as they're willing to give you uh, their time because they are worth giving you giving. Them.